You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. May you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phil. You may be seated. Right. Man, it is, there's no other place I would rather be than right here with you. Let me say that clearly and emphatically. Uh, it's great to see you all on this Sunday morning where I actually um, woke up early and turned on the heat. <laughs> so I was that guy this morning. Yeah, I got a couple of booze. A couple of people were like, who do talking to John. He's like, no, nah, once, once it's off, it's off. And I'm like, not nah, me, man. I was freezing. So say, judge me. Go ahead. All right. Uh, we're having family worship today, which means kids, you are in the service, but once again, you are never a distraction. Um, I'm grateful that you're here. Also, we do have totes, though, in the hallway. So if those totes serve you along with a couple of different sermon note sheets. And once again, guys, uh, if you fill out those sermon note sheets, bring them up afterwards. I got a treat for you if it's okay with your parents. Adults, if you fill them out as well, good for you. All right. And then um, also we do have a restless kids room right across the hallway. So if uh, one of the kids gets squirrely, no problem. You just go right over there. We pump in the sermon right into the, right into the room. So, All right. We are coming to the end of the Beatitudes in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, as you know. I hope and I've been praying that these Beatitudes inform your mind and shape your heart. As I've been saying since the beginning of this series, the Beatitudes help describe the essence of the Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? And don't get me wrong, all of Scripture is beneficial for understanding the Christian faith. Beginning in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation. But I think we've seen how the Beatitudes just have like a significant weight to it. After today, you'll notice a transition. After sitting at the feet of Jesus, we will be summoned to get up and act upon the essence of our faith. So if we just read all these Beatitudes, another question becomes, now what? Now what do we do? Again, a motto for this sermon series is that actions follow essence. So like, like we got my front door, I got this bird's nest, and we always get baby birds right there in the front door. 
And, and it's like, we're going to be pushing the baby birds out of the nest so that you act upon what it is you believe. And that's what's coming down the pike as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to get very specific about how we live in this world. So I'm going to pray, ask for God's help, ask for God to illuminate His Word this morning to our minds and to our hearts. So one more time, briefly pray. Heavenly Father, I confess my great need for You, so help me. Help me to be clear with my words. Help me to be faithful to Your Word. You have already spoken. I just want to be faithful to what You have said. Pray for hearts to receive Your Word as well. Pray this all in the only name that we can pray, in Christ's name. Amen. So I often begin a sermon with an example or an illustration that kind of helps make uh, the main point of the sermon. And nothing came to my mind, which is okay. But I had a thought that helps highlight the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. We are about to spend a lot of time talking about ethics or morality. Maybe you're in high school and you had an ethics class, or in college you had an ethics class, or you took a philosophy class that talks a lot about ethics and morality. What Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, these ethics, run counter to two prevailing views of Christianity, I think, at least in American Christianity. Number one, there's an attempt to unhitch ethics from Christianity. Right? It's like, I, I said the prayer... Now we're good. Not to worry about living in a particular way. I just said the prayer. Now I can do whatever I want. You know, or, or in, in, in this same vein, it's like we just need to love each other well, which is true, but no one wants to define what it means to love God and love others well. They don't want to get into the ethics of love. What does, it, what does it mean? Second time today. What does it mean to love? Right? That's one prevailing thought, I think, within Christianity. Another one, there are, there are movements within Christianity that pick and choose what to believe about Christ's teachings and the entire Bible, for that matter. Thank you. Right? It's like Jesus and the teachings of Christ are an a la carte line. Like, you ever been to, like, what, OCB, Old Country Buffet? What was the one in the South that we went to? It was another one. Golden Corral. Like, you get, you get to the buffet line, you're like, all right, I'm all about prime rib. And not so much that broccoli, unless there's cheese on it. Then we're good, because cheese covers a multitude of sins, right? Or you just pick and choose whatever it is you want. And that kind of Christianity is going on within America, and frankly, all across the world. You just pick and choose. And so we do that Sermon on the Mount, right? And all these ethical issues that Jesus raises. Well, I think the Beatitudes in the entire Sermon on the Mount is like a massive wrecking ball. And it's just running right into the building. I know you've picked up on the pattern in the Beatitudes. It's easy to see. Blessed are the blank, for they shall blank. The pattern is meant to make the Beatitudes memorable and memorizable. As we've seen in the previous seven Beatitudes, um, Jesus is addressing our human heart. Our heart is fickle and fragile. It needs to be protected and guarded because from the heart flow the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. In some respects, Beatitudes 1 through 7 
are to be internalized. Like we really need to take it to heart. But in this eighth beatitude, it kind of takes on a different dimension. Instead of directly addressing the human heart, Jesus speaks about eternal, external factors that dog the Christian life, right? Namely, persecution. Also, did you pick up on what's going on in verse 10? What do the persecuted people of God receive? They receive the kingdom of heaven. We saw that in the very first beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall receive, again, the kingdom of heaven. Now, for all of you English nerds, what we have going on here right now is called an inclusio. We have a thought at the beginning of a statement and at the end of a statement, and it's meant to capture something. It actually happens all the time in Holy Scripture. We don't notice it as much because we're going from Hebrew to English or from Greek to English, but we see it clearly right here. So a reason why some people think there are eight Beatitudes and not nine is because of this inclusio. That'd be my position. But it doesn't really matter what you believe about that. The message of Christ does not change. So I chose to combine the eighth Beatitude with verses 11 and 12 because they do speak about the same issue. And it's easy to pick up. Persecution. Further, it seems to me that there's a flow moving from verse 10 to verse 11. Here's what I mean. Verse 10 does not break the pattern with the previous seven Beatitudes. Jesus speaks in the third person. He's basically preaching to the crowd. But then, in verse 11, he pivots to make the point personal. Instead of speaking generally, he says, Blessed are you. Haven't seen that in the previous Beatitudes. Blessed are you. It's like he's pointing his finger at your heart, and that's your life. The change is subtle, but not insignificant. I have one final contextual point from our passage. All these Beatitudes are connected. We have seen how Jesus threads together each Beatitude like a, like a pearl necklace. Well, it's worth noting that the peacemakers, that was the previous Beatitude from verse 9, are the ones who are going to be persecuted. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. Guess what? You are going to be persecuted. If you're going to apply the words of Christ, if you're going to pursue peacemaking, do not be shocked if you are persecuted. Indeed, the words of Christ are are sobering. They're meant to be sobering. We're not meant to read past it quickly, but pause and be like, whoa, this is kind of heavy stuff. So how can we begin to compartmentalize the words of Christ in Matthew 5, verses 10, 11, and 12? We read in these three verses that you, Christian, will be persecuted for two reasons. At least two reasons that come out in this particular text. I put them up there for you. You will be persecuted for doing what is right. You will be persecuted for following Christ. For doing what is right and following Christ. I want to look at each reason why Christians are persecuted. Then, I think in verse 12, it encapsulates these two reasons of why Christians are persecuted. Okay, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
in Christian theology, we are accustomed to talking about the righteousness of, of Christ. This comes out in our confession of faith. The Apostle Paul speaks of the righteousness of God and righteousness as a Christian's right standing with God because of Christ. All right, that's good and all. That's good theology. But here, the focus of righteousness is on what is right and just. Instead of thinking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, think about virtue. We should not be shocked that Jesus is addressing right versus wrong. The way Jesus is shaping your heart to know right from wrong is to tether your heart to God and to God's word. If what I'm saying is true, how can we know right from wrong, right? If God is saying, blessed are those who do what is right, well, what is right and wrong? We have to settle that. In other words, who gets to lay down the moral parameters for your life? The answer is simple. The moral law in the Old Testament, which continues to be reaffirmed in the New Testament, is how we determine what is right and what is wrong. Let's go back to the book of Exodus and the time when God gave Moses, uh, we call it the Decalogue or the, or the Ten Commandments. Let's take one of the Ten Commandments and see how upholding this commandment may lead to persecution, right? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's commandment number one, right out of the gate. So, the first commandment is about idolatry. There is only one God, and you're to worship Him alone. There is only one God, and guess what? You are not Him. And what was the perpetual problem for the people of God in the Old Testament? Idolatry. They kept worshiping other gods. What's the perpetual problem for the people of God today? Idolatry. The first commandment establishes an ethical principle. It is right to worship God alone, and it is wrong to serve other gods or carved images, right? Further, it is wrong to worship the self, which is where we see a lot of idolatry happening today. And if you do what is right, worship God and God alone, do not be surprised that you will be persecuted. Now, I imagine in my head, at least, in my little small brain, Someone objecting and saying something like this, Pastor Sean, who cares who you worship? Like, just live and let live, right? You do you, I'll do me. Well, throughout history, many people and governments have cared about who or what you worship. It's actually quite shocking if you start looking back, if you get, on the, get in the church history time machine and you see how persecution takes place. Like, for example, prior to the rise of Emperor Constantine, I think 4th century, Christians were persecuted because they refused to worship Roman gods. In, in some communities, now, the world wasn't connected like it, was, like it is today, but in some communities back then, it went down like this. Like, hey, you can worship Jesus, but all you need to do is come into our temple, light a few things on the altar, and then you can go back and continue to worship Jesus. And if you don't do that, you will be persecuted. Like you can still worship Jesus, but you've got you to do our little, little acts over here as well. You've got to worship these gods. And Christians were like, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. And the Romans were like, no, you're not hearing me clearly. 
you can still worship Jesus. And the Christians are like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing that. I'm I'm to worship God and God alone. Well, many Christians refused and were persecuted for making the right choice. Let's test my idea with a few more commitments. Thou shall not commit adultery. When a man and woman are married to one another, God says they need to be faithful to one another. Without getting into the divorce conversation, what is it like to hold to a biblical view of marriage in 21st century America? How's that going these days? Go ahead and post on social media that God calls a man and woman to be faithful to one another in marriage and see what happens to your comments feed, right? Try saying that at a dinner party with mixed company or in the public schools now. What happens when you stand up for what is right? Persecution, potentially. Here's one more commandment we can apply. Thou shall not steal. You might think, of course we should not steal. That seems so obvious. We should not steal. Don't, kids, don't put the hand in the cookie jar. Unless mom and dad say you can, right? Obvious. Well, it's interesting to me how expectations are made to some moral principles that we hold. This is going to get wildly controversial, and I'm aiming to offend everyone, so just telling you that up front, because I'm going to give two examples. Here we go. I'll never forget watching the news as rioting occurred on, this, on Lake Street in Minneapolis. I lived in the Twin Cities for 13 years, and I used to, I used to hang out on Lake Street. In particular, I, will, I won't forget the Target, the Target store on East Lake Street getting looted. In droves, people went into Target to steal whatever was on the shelf. I remember people walking out with the shopping cart and TVs in the shopping cart. I was like, what's going on here? Now, whatever you, you can say whatever you want about the protesting and rioting of 2020. Opinions are going to vary in how to diagnose that. I get that. There's a variety of opinions in this room. Cool. However, what I saw from my honestly purchased TV was stealing. Now, if you piped up in the summer of 2020 to say that what was happening is stealing, you could have been verbally shot down by some very prominent sectors of American society. It's true. Y'all know it. Crimes were glossed over and explained away. 2020 revealed a lot about the moral or ethic fabric of this country. And like I said, because I don't care who you voted for, and I just want you to be faithful to follow Christ, I will also call out all the wingnuts who went into the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Because what did they do? They stole. It's important to remember that regardless of what happens, everything is judged by God. Everything. Everything is judged by God's standards of ethics and morality. When you live rightly before God, you should not be shocked that you will be persecuted. Sure, you won't be fed to the lions of Carthage like the Christians in the first and second centuries. 
but you might get passed up for that job because you refused to do what was wrong. You might receive some Twitter hate because you said that one true thing that you read in the Bible. Family reunions might get a little awkward, right? Depending on the kind of family you're a part of. But verse 10, blessed are those who live rightly, will challenge your allegiance. Right? It'll challenge your allegiance. So what motivates a Christian to live rightly before God while being persecuted? We got that answer, right? The kingdom of heaven. John Calvin sums up verse 10 really well when he says this. When we are unjustly afflicted, provided our conscience testifies before God that we are blameless, we must not lose heart thinking that we are worse off than unbelievers. Why? Because the happiness we are to seek is from above. While we are on earth, we must prepare to do battle. But there is also the promise of rest, which will be ours, of victory and of the glory that goes with it. That promise calls us to look away from the world and to lift up our minds to the realm above. So God has moral or ethical standards for which we are to live distinctly in this world. Therefore, when you live God's way, do not be shocked when others bristle and mock. Don't be shocked. God's really clear about what's going to happen, what's going on. For us, the ethical standards are objective. That's really important. They're objective. They come from outside of ourselves. Like, if I can level with you for a moment, admitting that you believe that there are objective moral standards and they come from God is actually a radical proposal these days. Like, a few alternatives could be this, in terms of how do we determine right and wrong. Like, I could determine right and wrong from within, from within Sean Powers. I could do it that way. Like, not from without, but from within. Well, that's kind of a scary proposal, I think, because of my wicked, sinful heart. Another alternative is that right and wrong are a construct of society, right? Your local community or even the government. They're the ones who are the arbiters of what is right versus what is wrong. This option might sound great until you live in a place like Nazi Germany. Or even more, you live in Waukee and they pass a law that is clearly contradictory to God's word. No, God has spoken. And he has shown us how to live. God made it clear with the moral law. And then we see how Christ models a biblical ethic. If you are bold to do what is right and reject what is wrong according to God's standards, then persecution will find you. It'll find you. It'll find you out. The second reason Christians are persecuted is that they follow Christ. That's verse 11. Both reasons are certainly connected, but verse 11 adds specifics about being persecuted. Let's reread that verse. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So revile, that word persecute again, and uttering evil. You will be reviled, which means you will be denounced, rebuked, and insulted. You will be persecuted, which means people who hate God's ways will come after you. People will utter evil against you, which means you will be gossiped about. You will be slandered. Like, 
I mean, I must admit that Jesus is not making Christianity cool. It seems that way, right? Now, if you want to prevent a person from joining a cause or a sports team, just tell them two things. Listen, <laughs> it's going to be really hard, and people aren't going to like you. <laughs> like, no one's going to join that. So I'm not shocked that messages like live your best life now and you can win take hold of hearts and minds in the American church. Here's a path of thought opposite to what Jesus is preaching in this passage. And yes, I'm going after a specific train of thought in our culture, the prosperity gospel. It's being preached and believed throughout this country and it's being exported to the world. The prosperity gospel is a message of self-reliance and false positivity. It's a message that you can live your best life now and you will not be persecuted. As a matter of fact, you can become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. The prosperity gospel places its hope in, in the material and not in Christ. So tell me, how does the prosperity gospel square with Matthew 5, 10, verses 10, 11, and 12? How do you think the early church would have received the prosperity gospel message as they're being chased by lions? The prosperity gospel is a lie. It is a dumpster set on fire, and it's floating downstream. Now, on the one hand, who wants to be persecuted? Like, who's raising their hand and signing up for that? Like, I get it prosperity gospel is attractive because of its false claims. I don't enjoy being called a bigot for holding a biblical view of marriage. I get it. On the other hand, standing up for truth is costly. Standing with Christ will result in you potentially being slandered. There's an excellent example of being persecuted for truth and the rejection of truth in the gospel of John. Actually, there's a lot of great examples uh, but I went to John chapter 9. It is a long story. and takes up an entire chapter, but here are the cliff notes. Jesus and his disciples come across a man born blind, right? He's born blind. It didn't happen to him at some point in life. He was born that way. The disciples asked Jesus, why was he blind? Was it the sin of his parents or his sin that resulted him in being born blind? Which is really, really bad theology, right? right? So admit it, disciples kind of lost it on that one. But they asked the question anyways. So Jesus, he spits on the ground, he makes a clump of mud, and then he puts it over the eyes of the blind man. And then Jesus tells, tells the man to go to the place called Sulom, this, this pool, right? Go in the pool. The man follows the instructions of Jesus. And miraculously, the dude's healed. He can see. It's like, what a phenomenal story of God's mercy, right? Well, word got around. And the religious leaders found out. The man who was healed was put in front of the Pharisees who wanted to know, like, how did this happen? The Pharisees did not believe the miracle. So they actually called in the blind man's parents and be like, this can't be your son. And the parents were like, it is our son. And you're telling me he was born blind? Yeah. And he's not? Yeah. The Pharisees could not handle the truth. They couldn't handle the truth that this man who was blind could now see, and they specifically couldn't handle the truth that this was done by Jesus. 
And so they kicked this man out of their presence, and they basically cursed at him, calling him an utter sinner. Now, here's the last few verses of John 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus like found him like, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, there's that word again, judgment. Now, on what basis is Jesus able to judge? Moral law. For judgment, I've come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, here's the kicker. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees could not stand Jesus, and their hatred for Jesus hardened their heart and blinded their eyes from seeing the truth. So what do the Pharisees do? They eventually persecuted Jesus, and they persecuted all of Jesus' followers. So do not be shocked when you are reviled and slandered because others refuse to see and believe the truth and believe Christ. The second important point from verse 11 is that when you are persecuted, it is for the sake of Christ. Here's Augustine on this point. Now, the profitable thing is not suffering those evils, but bearing with them with equanimity, what a great word, and cheerfulness for the sake of Christ. We're persecuted and yet still cheerful. Now, a lingering question from the latter part of verse 11 is, are you willing to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of Christ? Are you willing? Perhaps the most important test of a person's faith in Christ is seeing how a person responds to being persecuted for following Christ. I'll never forget this class that I took at, at seminary a long time ago. It seems like a long time ago. And uh, it was summer, and I just had to take a class. Options were limited. And so I just took this class on global missions. And they, in the seminary, flew the professor in uh, to teach this class. And this professor told so many stories about people coming to Christ and following Christ. And he told one story about a Muslim man who was given a Bible. Basically, a Bible was smuggled in. And this Muslim man started reading the Bible. And then the Lord saved him. The Holy Spirit moved upon his cold, dead heart, and he was redeemed. Now, what's the next step after a person is saved? What do you do? You get baptized. Or a baptistic church. Not sprinkling babies. No, you get saved, then you're baptized. Well, here's the deal. Baptisms are supposed to be public because they are declarations of allegiance. When you get baptized, you're saying, I'm following Christ and Christ alone. You know, here in the United States, you might not be ostracized for being baptized. We're going to have a baptism here in, in late June, for example. I mean, I'm not, I'm not anticipating protests. Like, they wanted to come and protest, cool, because they're going to hear the gospel. We probably won't get that. But there are people in countries where when you get baptized, you could be killed. That was the case for this man. 
This man was living in a country where Christianity and Bibles were illegal. But his physical life did not matter to this guy. He was baptized, the gospel was presented, people watched, and then he was murdered. In some parts of the world, the lions of Carthage are still roaming around chasing Christians. These kind of stories might seem shocking to us, right? But they should not be shocking, honestly. Jesus even tells us we shouldn't be shocked. Actually, we should expect to be persecuted. We read in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, hold up. Verse, verse 10, I'm going to be persecuted for doing what is right. Verse 11, I'm going to be persecuted for following Christ. And then verse 12, Jesus is like, rejoice! Rejoice! I mean, Jesus isn't making a cultish proclamation where a person seamlessly and senselessly runs into a forest fire because someone told him to do it, right? No, Jesus rightly puts it into perspective, one, the consequences of sin in this world, two, the work of Christ to redeem what is broken, and three, the battle Christians face as ambassadors of change. This is what you are to expect as a Christian in this world. I mean, since Genesis 3, the battle between good and evil, God and Satan, has been ongoing. But we can rejoice because Christ has secured the victory. Jesus even points to the prophets as a point of comparison. Like, if you know your Old Testament well, if you read those prophetic books, you're kind of like, what? We're like the prophets? Why were the prophets persecuted? For two reasons. They preached what is right and they preached against what is wrong. That's reason number one. And we'll get to the second reason in a moment. But here's a quick sampling of what the prophets preached in the Old Testament, whom Jesus is comparing us to. Joel, prophet Joel, preached to Judah to return to God because they had worshipped and fallen to idolatry. They were worshipping other gods. And Joel's like, come back, come back. Jonah reluctantly preached to the city of Nineveh because they were, quote, wicked and evil. Amos said that Israel needed to repent because of immorality. Hosea also preached to Israel and compared the unfaithfulness of Israel to what? A prostitute. What did Isaiah not cover in his condemnation of Judah, right? Bottom line, Isaiah was like, you all need to repent. Micah predicted judgment on Judah, not just because the people had turned away from God. He emphasized the need for ethical change in their secular and their religious life. And he's basically saying, guys, stop being hypocrites. And like Jonah, Nahum preached to the great city of Nineveh. But instead of, of Nineveh repenting, they didn't, they didn't repent this time. And they continued on in their sin and God judged the city of Nineveh. I mean, that's just a sampling of what the prophets spoke about what is right and wrong. But I could also mention Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Not to mention the greatest prophet, Moses. So what's the moral of the story, if I could be punny for a moment? The prophets were persecuted because they preached God's message of repentance and sin. You Christians should not be much different from the prophets. That's what Jesus says. 
So I hope you see how the message of the prophets in the Old Testament is what Jesus was saying in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, those who are doing what is right. But there's another reason, like I said, that some of the prophets were persecuted. Some of the prophets preached about a coming Messiah. I don't mention too much about John the Baptist, but he follows, he certainly follows in this category. Let's run it back for a quick overview of what the prophets spoke, shall we? Micah said that the Messiah would be born in where? Bethlehem. Isaiah prophesied that Messiah would be born of a virgin. He'd be called Emmanuel. He'd be the heir to the throne of David. And he would be a Nazarene. All which were true. Isaiah gets another mention. He gets bonus points because of Isaiah 53 when he talks about the suffering servant. Daniel said the Messiah would sit upon an eternal throne. Jeremiah said that the children, children would be murdered in the hometown of the Messiah. And Zechariah said the Messiah would enter in Jerusalem on a donkey. And the list goes on. The prophets, and now you, will be reviled and slandered because of what you believe about Christ and because you stand with Christ. But what is all this for? Like the question occurred to me, what is all this for? Right? As you go to your job, you go to your school, you hang out with your neighbors, and you just heard a message that you're going to be persecuted for believing what is right and for following Christ. What is all this for? Is it worth enduring all the persecution? Maybe not physical, could be verbal. Could be that friend that now gives you the cold shoulder for what you stand for. I think it's kind of the Lord to remind us twice that persecution is not wasted, but it is to be endured for yours is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. And your reward is great in heaven, verse 12. What exactly is your reward? Well, there is a debate about what heavenly rewards are and what are the extent of these rewards, right? But here's what I can say for sure. There is no greater reward than to be, at, to be with Christ and to be at rest from the weariness of this world. What greater reward is there than that? Like, okay, you can pray for that golden crown, fine, whatever. You want to hold that cool scepter, whatever, whatever image comes to your head. There's no greater reward than to be with Christ and to be at rest from this world. But until that day, the people of God labor on to live rightly, to live rightly, in a world full of conflict. I get this. Our Lord warns us about persecution while also pushing us out to bear witness to the world. I don't want to get too far ahead, but I do want to put Christian persecution in the proper context. In the next verse, next verse, Verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then the next verse after that, he's like, you're the light of the world. <laughs> you can be persecuted, but you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. God does care about how you live and what you say. Because you bear witnessing to the world about who God is and his great love for us found in Jesus Christ. So here's the final question. Final questions I want to pose in light of what we have seen today and what we're going to see next week, Lord willing. Do the people in your life know that you're a Christian? 
Let the question sit on you. I'm not talking about people in this church, right? <laughs> yes and amen. Love you all. Where you go to work, that barista you see on a regular basis, your family members, do they know that you're a Christian? Do you hide your faith out of fear of what other people will think? If you cannot relate to Matthew 5, verses 10, 11, and 12, it is possible you have hidden your faith underneath a basket. Next week, Matthew 5, 15. If you've been hiding your faith underneath a basket, I want to encourage you to be prayerful. Pray to God. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Examine your relationship with the Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You are a blessed Christian. You may be persecuted, but you are blessed. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.